healing of the beggar who sat at the gate of the temple by St. Peter and St. John. And yesterday, today, and again tomorrow, we are dealing with the after effects of that very brief encounter. On the one hand, the healing of the crippled man was incredibly brief. Peter ended a lifetime of misery for this man by offering to him what he had, which wasn't the coin he was begging for, but salvation in and through the name of Jesus Christ. And lifting him up, his legs that had never worked a day in his life suddenly could move. And he could walk, he could run, he could jump, he could move with a freedom he never knew. And he was lifted up as well out of being a beggar into a life that had real dignity. But it was brief. This whole matter of the miraculous healing didn't take more than a minute. And yet we see there's this weighty after effect of the healing. On the one hand, this man's life is changed so dramatically in such a short time. And yet we also see the impact that this change has on so many others. And so there's the crowd of all of those who are at the temple who suddenly turn around wondering what the fuss is about and see this crippled beggar whom they had been walking past day after day, week after week, year after year, suddenly and remarkably changed. And they are puzzled and curious by this, and now the disciples need to explain. And so note how not just the healing, but the woundedness of that man is at the service of the coming to faith of so many. His many years of being unable to move are now at the service of all of these other hearts gathered around the disciples, gathered around him, being called to move with a freedom that they never knew either before. And Peter identifies the source of that freedom, the source of that healing, as this Jesus who has been raised from the dead. And note how remarkable this really is, because here we see the Lord is sharing his victory over sin, over death, over all destructive and demeaning powers with his church. And by means of the touch of St. Peter's hand, the touch of the church, the touch of Jesus arrives in this man, not just for his private benefit, although that is very real, but as a public outward sign to all of the others whose hearts perhaps have been crippled all their lives, even though their legs work just fine, that it is time for you as well to respond and seek the freedom of the gospel. And as this is going on, we hear that there are others who are troubled by this news. And so they arrive today. The chief priests, the scribes, the temple elders, and they are troubled and unable to celebrate the miraculous transformation of this wounded man's life because it doesn't meet their criterion for what is acceptable. 
And this is the moment now we have. And as St. Peter engages those who seek to silence the message, what he says is absolutely remarkable. And note, they're arrested and taken away. Why? Because they brought healing into this man's life, and they did it in the name of Jesus, and they were not afraid to witness to that. And we see that there's a certain fearfulness on the part of authorities that causes them to pull them away from the crowd so their voices can't be heard anymore. And now there's the show trial where we want to find out why you guys did this. And so Peter now, boldly, we hear, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands before the religious authorities that are opposed and have been opposed to Jesus and his message all along. And he speaks to them, and he names a fundamental mystery, a fundamental sickness of the human heart, which is the human heart all too regularly rejects goodness. And that seems counterintuitive because we say we want goodness, we want happiness, we want freedom, we want salvation, we want life. At least that's what we fool ourselves into believing about ourselves. But what the human heart more often than not really wants is, I want goodness on my terms. I want goodness as I understand it. I want freedom on my terms. I want salvation for me and for those people with whom I'd like to share it. There's a certain narrow selfishness about the heart. And this is what Peter points out to them. Look at the good deed that was done. There is no disputing the power of what has happened here. And there's no disputing the goodness of what has happened here. But you can't accept the fact that goodness has happened because it doesn't conform to what you are looking for. We see this in the world around us today. This tendency reproduces itself politically, economically, in our households, where we mistake our small understanding of good and right for what is truly good and right. But the simple fact of the matter is we don't get to decide what salvation is. And we don't get to decide who gets saved. The one who gives salvation gets to decide all of those things. God doesn't save us in the way we decide we want to be saved. God who saves us will save us in the way he wants to save us. And our job is to respond to that. God who is perfectly good will not give us the goodness we think we want. He'll give us the goodness that's really good in his time and in his way. And that can be hard for us to accept. And this is what St. Peter essentially says to those who are criticizing him. You say you want all these things, and then they come to you, and you reject them and throw them aside because you're looking for somebody else. You're looking for it to come to you in some other way. But it's here, and it's arrived in this way. 
And so he says, you're the builders. You're the builders trying to build up the people. And what did you do? The good stone, the solid stone on which everything can stand, you threw it aside. What the problem is, you don't get to make that choice. And so God reached out and took that stone you rejected, and he said, this is the one I've planned on all along, and I'm building on this, not where you think I'm going to. Note how powerful this is. And so Peter reminds them again, the power that healed this man is the power, the life, and the victory of the one you threw aside, the one you rejected. The one you said was not good enough. The one in whom you said there is no future. The one of whom you said we want nothing to do with him. He's the one through whom salvation has come into the world. And so now you've got to decide. Are you going to cling to your rigid sense of what you want? Or are you going to surrender to the way that God actually works in the world? And note how important a lesson that is for all of us. That the key to growing in the faith is learning to respond to God in the way that God wants us to respond to him. It means learning to receive from God what it is that God actually wants to give us. It means honoring God in the way that God tells us he would like to be honored. And note how that sits on a certain real and humble love for God. If I love you only in the way that I want to, I'm really only serving myself. It's the same in the spiritual life, where real love sooner or later desires to love rightly, to love in a way that corresponds to the person who I'm loving. And so it is that God loves his people and extends salvation, and our job is not to turn to the Lord and say, I don't want it that way, if that's the way you're giving it to me. My job is to say, help me learn how to accept it. It would be like when I came out for Holy Communion, and I'm standing here with the ciborium, and I held up the consecrated host to you, and I said, the body of Christ and you looked at it and said, not that one, Father, I want a different one. It's scandalizingly insulting, isn't it, to put it that way? And yet that's what our hearts can often do. And Peter is speaking so strongly to the religious leaders because he's saying that's effectively what you're doing. The Lord has come and said, here is salvation. And you're looking at him and saying, but that's not what I want. And the Lord is saying, but here is salvation. And you're saying, no, no, you don't understand. What I want is salvation in some lesser way. And the Lord is saying, but here is salvation. And there's only one kind. And so receive it. And this is why then Peter concludes with that remarkably powerful and strong statement, there is no other name and there is no other person that the Almighty has given to the world by which we can be saved. There is one source of salvation. There is one Savior. There aren't several. There aren't many. 
and to the extent that anyone is saved, it is through what God has done in Jesus Christ. He's that decisive and that important for everyone and not merely for some. What a powerful, powerful statement that is. And what we see in the reading today, especially the way it wraps up with the statement that some 2,000 people came to the faith because of what happened in the life of that crippled beggar who suddenly was healed, is anticipated in our gospel reading. About a week after the resurrection, St. Peter says to his brother apostles, I'm going to go fishing. He goes out to do, on the one hand, something that's familiar, but he also leaves the city. He's, in a sense, going away to a place like a shrine, a place of retreat, a place outside of the ordinary, a place outside of the usual busyness and distractedness of the world, and in no small measure because things have been so overwhelming. First, in the terrible intensity of the passion, and then in the surprisingly great and overwhelmingly powerful joy of the fact that Jesus is in fact risen from the dead. And this is a lot for anyone, however holy, to come to terms with. And so he goes out onto the water. It's quiet. It's what he knows. And it's wonderful to reflect on this in the sight of the Atlantic Ocean just from here, on an island famed across the years for its fishing economy. And so here we have Peter wanting to put the boat on the water. And several of his brother disciples said, we're going to go too. And so they go together, this small band of apostles in their boat on the water. And they fish through the night. Because the important thing at the moment is the fishing. And it's the regular casting out of the net onto the water and the pulling it in, which is not unlike what it is to pray. The putting the heart out on the waters of devotion and then the casting the net of desire, the net of petition, the net of asking for mercy, the net of meditation and pulling it in. It's not unlike what it is to sit down and meditate on sacred scripture, where the mind goes out over the waters of the word of God and casts its net and draws it in and casts its net and draws it in. But we hear that all through the night, nothing came back in in the net. The net kept coming back empty which, if we're honest, is often how our prayer works, isn't it? I keep casting and the net seems strangely empty. And yet they keep casting through the night. And the important thing is what happens is that everything that happened through the night and those repeatedly empty nets have a value. 
a value that is only recognizable as day begins to break. And as light emerges, we see that Jesus is there. And the question is, does Jesus come with the light, or does the light come with Jesus? And Scripture is marvelously ambiguous about that. As the sun comes up, Jesus is already on the shore. Almost as if when Jesus decided to show up, it was morning. And that is the way the spiritual life works, too. A lot of times the spiritual life is dimness. It is darkness. And then there are those moments where he makes his presence known. And there's a certain quiet brightness that settles over us. And it's in that quiet brightness of darkness passing and day beginning that the Lord asks them a simple question. Did you manage to catch anything? And they say no. Not even knowing who it is they're speaking to. Because this happens in our prayer too, doesn't it? Sometimes there's the indication of a moment of grace, but we're not quite sure what's happening yet. And so this is that moment for them. And so he says, which in English is marvelously ambiguous, throw your net over the right side of the boat. Well, does he mean the physical right side or does he mean the correct side of the boat? In English, there's that marvelous double meaning. But note, he tells them the direction to throw their net. And so by definition, the physical right side of the boat must be the correct side of the boat. Notice what the Lord does. He doesn't simply say, keep trying. There's a moment where in the spiritual life where he directs the casting of the net, where he directs the movement. And note, the miracle comes when they follow his direction. He doesn't simply say, try again. He says, throw it in that direction. And the direction the Lord indicates is automatically the correct one. And so as they do that, the miracle happens. And I'm not a professional fisherman myself, but this is an odd characteristic of the story. They're only 100 yards away from the shore. Who catches 153 fish 100 yards away from the shore? The water's not even all that deep. Note how remarkable this is. The water's pretty shallow. This is not put out into the depths of the ocean. They're not even all that far from the shore. And they cast the net, and amazingly, the net in the shallow water gets 153 large fish. And what net in shallow water catches that many big fish? Because that's where the small fish usually are. And it's a surprising detail here that it's not just the catch is abundant. It's not even a catch they have any right making. They're not out far enough. The fish are too big. Note what happens when the Lord's instruction is followed. When the Lord directs our prayer, we don't have to move very far. And graces are there. 
when we follow the Lord's instruction, we don't have to go all that far. And it's not about the work we do, it's about the simple responsiveness of our hearts. And a small response to the word of the Lord can net a mighty catch. How wonderful that is. Note how wonderful that is. And note how that corresponds to what we see in our first reading. Peter went to one man, said to him, I don't have any money that I can give you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, rise and walk. And he lifted him up. And in lifting one guy, the church gained 2,000 believers. Just like that net thrown not very far from the shore that pulled in such an enormous, even miraculous catch. Now good it is to reflect on that here. We're in a sense at Mass as we pray, we're casting our nets out over the waters of faith. And beautifully we know when the Lord is present on this altar like he was on the shore for the disciples, he's going to say to each and every one of us, cast your net over the right side of the boat and you'll make a catch. And we'll come forward. Without physical nets in our hands, we will cast our nets by extending our hands. And we'll catch something much greater than 153 large fish because his very life will be placed in our hands. Look how wonderful that is. We receive so much, and we don't have to move very far or throw the net very hard in order to do that. What a marvelous sacrament indeed this is. Amen.